This time I invite you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 41, beginning in verse 21. If you're using a pew Bible, that can be found on page 601. Isaiah 41, starting in verse 21 through 29. Hear the word of the Lord. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and let us and let and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. I stirred up one from the north, and he has come from the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning that we may know, and beforehand that we might say, he is right? There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are. And I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there is no one. Among these, there is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. This is God's word. Do keep your Bibles open there at Isaiah 41. There are several ways of reading the Bible. That is to say, there are various themes that are introduced and developed throughout its pages. Some of these are obvious and pervasive. For example, the idea of a covenant or the idea of the kingdom. And one other prevailing idea that you find in both the Old Testament and the New Testament is this idea of idolatry. In the commandments, when God is giving the Ten Commandments to Israel, you'll remember that the first two commandments have to do with idolatry. You shall have no other gods before me, God says. You shall not make for yourself a carved image of any likeness or anything that's in the heavens above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And what we find from those Ten Commandments and from those first two is that the Bible does not allow for a third option. That is, people are trusting and serving either God or they are trusting and serving something that is not God. There is no possibility that anybody is not trusting and serving something. That is a fundamental biblical principle. You find this principle worked out in the book of Romans where Paul puts his finger on the impulse of idolatry. He says this, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God and worshipped and served created things rather than the creature. He's arguing that everybody, everybody has the book of nature 
before their eyes, placating before their eyes what God has done. Many people have the book of Scripture that goes further and explains and interprets both what nature shows and reveals more of the heart and mind of God. So we have the book of nature and we have the book of Scripture. And what Paul is saying is that people who ignore what nature says and Scripture says and reject the God who's revealed there are not doing nothing. They are trusting in and they are serving. That is, they are worshipping a figment of their own imagination. Because an idol can be something metal and it can be something mental. It can be something you make with your hands. It can be something you make up in your mind. An idol is a rival for God. Let me give you some quotations from people who have tried to define what idolatry is. Martin Luther in his catechism puts it like this. Whatever your heart clings to and relies on, that is your God. And he goes on to say that trust and faith of the heart alone make both a god and an idol. Alec Motier puts it like this, the idol is whatever claims the loyalty that belongs to God alone. Chris Wright says, idols are the work of human hands, constructs of our own fallen and rebellious imagination. And John Calvin says, since God has prescribed how he should be worshipped by us, whenever we turn away, even in the smallest degree, from his rule, we make ourselves other gods and we degrade him from his rightful place. So those are definitions, and I think each of them are helpful. They uh, build up, uh, they build on one another. And you're getting the idea that idolatry is giving your heart's trust and your service to something other than the God who's revealed himself in Scripture. And you know, it was the massive failure of Israel throughout her history, from her institution and constitution as a nation, when it was delivered from Egypt, there at Mount Sinai, it was the mark of Israel from that point until her exile into Babylon that she never, even for a moment, ever worshipped her own God exclusively. It is only the reality that all the time, through that period of time, from the exodus to the exile, Israel as a nation worshipped God, the Lord who delivered them from Egypt, and the gods of the nations outside of the covenant people, the nations around about them. That's the reality of their life. They were hedging their bets, in other words. They had their God who had done this for them, and there were these other gods who might be able to do something for them. There was the God called Baal, or Baal, for example, the God of the Canaanites. He is the weather God. Uh, the God of fertility, the God of thunderstorms, the God who provides rain. And, uh, and you can understand why people would turn to a God like that. He, he, he controlled the weather. Weather was important, especially in a dry country. And this morning I, I took time 
early this morning to remind myself of that very famous song by Jimmy Buffett. You take the weather with you. Anywhere you go, always take the weather with you. That one, which you may or may not recognize. Anyway, <laughs> thank you. Uh, but the reality is what, what that song says is that wherever you go, anywhere you go, everywhere you go, you take the weather with you. So if you have a God that represents the weather, you want him on your side. And so the Israelites, they played both sides against the middle by having God, the Lord, to deliver them from Egypt and Baal, the God of the weather, just to be sure, to be sure, as the Irish say, to be sure, to be sure that they were getting all the benefits they could get out of the world. So here's the, here's the issue. We come now to Isaiah 41. And Isaiah 41 is bracketed by a, a court case. The first few verses of the chapter, we have God calling all the nations of the world to the court in order that they might hear from him and they might reply to his questions. And the nations are full of fear because a new power is going to emerge from the east. You read about that in verse 1. And this new power that's going to emerge from the east will meet with victory at every step, will trample down all the nations and kings underfoot like fine dust, and he will do what he wants to do and nobody will be able to stop what he's doing. God is making a prediction that that's going to happen. And what's going to happen as a result of that, he goes on to say in verses 5 to 7, is that everybody's going to panic. The nations are going to go into a blind panic. They weren't expecting this new power to arise, and so what do they do? Well, they try to encourage each other and let's all stay together and be united against this common enemy. And let's go down the road to the, to the silversmith or the goldsmith, the craftsman, and, and encourage him to make us an idol that we can take home and that we can fix with hammer and nails and wires up on the wall so that we are covered and we have protection from this new foreign power that has arisen. God calls the nations. And now in the second part, this last part of the chapter, he is calling the idols themselves, those things in which people trust and which people serve. He's calling them and he's saying, do their claims stack up? Do their claims work their way out into reality? So at this point, I want, to I want to put those two pictures in your mind, the nations and the idols. The nations represent people outside of the covenant people of God. They represent what we call the world, sometimes in Christian circles. We get that from John's Gospel. Or what is often known today as our culture. The world or our culture represents the nations in their relationship to God's people, his church at that time. And the world, the culture, the nations have idols. And what is an idol but a construct that is meant to explain reality? It's a construct. That's what Baal was. There's the weather. You always take the weather with you everywhere you go. 
there's the weather, and Baal is a construct made up in somebody's head, then made up by a craftsman, so you could put it on the wall or on the mantel shelf uh, over the fireplace. It, it's made for you, it's made by a human being, and it's created specifically to do what? To explain reality. So an idol, in terms of our understanding today, from where we are sitting today, is any construct, either material or mental, either involving us making something, or involving us imagining, or speculating, or making something up, some explanation up, that explains reality as we know it. That's what an idol is. Now it's into that background, therefore, that I want us now to look at the passage. And there are three things I want to say, three points that I want you to notice. The first is that there's an awkward silence. There's an awkward silence. God uses, verse 21, satirical language. He is addressing those idols, those constructs, those human constructs. He's addressing them. And he says, come on now, come on now, little Baal. Little Marduk, all you little Molech, all, all these weird names they had. Come on, come and set forth your case, he says. Bring your proofs. You claim to be the ultimate explanation of everything. You claim to have the primary place in people's hearts and minds. You claim their trust. You claim their service. So come on, that's a huge claim to make. You surely must be able to support your claim. I want you to notice how God presents himself. He's the Lord, that is, he's the covenant God of Israel. He's also the king of Jacob, the king of Jacob. That again is covenantal language. In the ancient world you would have a suzerain who was a kind of emperor or super king who had a whole series of little kingdoms under his control and within his empire's influence. And the big king would come to a little king and say, look, uh, my army will protect you. I'll keep the trade routes open. I will come to your defense. Anyone hits you, I'll come and punch them. And you'll be okay so long as you recognize that I am your suzerain, your sovereign, your big king. And that was the kind of relationship that God had with Israel. He was the great king. They were the little kingdom that looked to him and trusted in him. And when you compare this second uh, court case with the first in the early part of this chapter, you'll find that God is calling all the idols of the nations to him because he is staking his claim on all the nations. He is the God of the nations. He is Israel's great king, but he is the world's great king. He is the absolute Lord and ruler of the nations. And what is being said is this, before this only God and King, all creatures, including their gods, must bow, and to this God and King, all creatures, including their gods, must answer. So the Sovereign Lord and His people assemble together in the court, call on the gods, come bring your arguments, give your proofs, your evidences. 
These gods of the nations represent their particular outlook on life that they advocate. And very often these gods had people serving them that were called oracles or prophets, we might call them, spokesmen for the god. And the kings or the leaders of a nation would come to the oracles and they would say, what is the god saying? Here's my problem. What is the god saying about this problem? And these oracles, these uh, spokesmen for the false gods, usually gave answers that were indistinct and unclear. There's a very famous example uh, that, uh, that uh, involves a man called Cressus, who was the emperor of the Lydian Empire. He was being, he was being harried and worried uh, on his borders by the advances of Cyrus, the leader of the Persian Empire. And so Cressus goes to his oracle and says, what should I do? Should I go out against Cyrus? Should I, should I meet him in battle and fight him? And the oracle gave him a word from their God that if he went out against them, he would, and here's what the oracle said, he would destroy a great kingdom. Go out against him and you will destroy a great kingdom. Cressus decided he would interpret that to mean that if he went out against Cyrus, the king of Persia, he would win and he would destroy Cyrus's empire. In fact, Cressus lost because you could interpret it either way. They always did that. They were hedging their bets. They were never clear. It was never definitive. And so the Lord asked them for definitive answers. Tell us. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, and declare to us things to come. He's saying to these gods of these nations, is there any evidence that you are independent of the system? Is there any evidence that you are transcendent, that is, over the system? Is there any evidence that you are outside of nature, outside of creation, outside of what exists, that you are not contingent on anything that was in the, or in the orbit of created, the created order? Is there any evidence that you are able to tell us objectively what happened at the very beginning? Can you tell us that? And can you tell us, as someone outside the system, how we got from there to where we are today? Can you explain the process of time and space that got us from the beginning to this moment of time? John Oswald, in his commentary, says, This is a highly sophisticated attack at the very roots of the pagan understanding of existence. The pagan notion of existence lay in the concept of continuity, that everything that exists is a part of everything else, that you can only guess at the future by looking at what happened in the past under the same circumstances. And that pagan system is now being questioned by God. He is challenging them to tell us what happened at the beginning of time. He's already called himself the first, and he will call himself the last. Back in chapter 41, verse 4, I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he, he says. Jesus picks that language up 
and calls himself the first and the last. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And what that means is the God of Israel, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is claiming to be the God of protology and the God of eschatology. Protology, the things of the beginning. Eschatology, the things of the end. He is the God of the beginning and the end. The God of, who is the author and the finisher of the human story. And it's that differentiation between God and our Lord Jesus and the gods of the nations that makes his, this transcendence, this difference, this outside of everything such a crucial understanding of who God is. Now it's this lack of transcendence that still eludes contemporary efforts to understand the past and anticipate the future. The mind that gives itself to getting the answers from the observable universe lacks the perspective of the supreme being who is the maker and maintainer of all things. We, as humans, are locked into the space-time continuum in which we find ourselves. We search for answers that are out with time, but we are locked into time. We search for answers that are to be found outside of space, not within space. Answers that only divine revelation can teach us. And you see how the king presses the matter. He asks these gods, do something, anything, that demonstrates that you are not contingent, that you are not dependent on everything else within this order of creation. Uh, look what he says, tell us what is to come hereafter. That we, may be dis that, that we may know that you are God's. God says to them, do good or, or do something really bad, but do something that will terrify us or surprise us or at least get some reaction from us. Tell us anything, anything about the future. Yet you cannot tell from the way things have always been. Anything surprising, anything that breaks in, that is brand new, that has never happened before, that is going to happen sometime in the future. Tell us about it. Tell us about it. God is mocking them. Scare us. Terrify us. Anything that shows that there is some kind of life. You can imagine God talking to the idols the way I'm about to talk to these little boys here. There they are. And this is a problem with an idol. They're, they're not idols, by the way. This is a Protestant church. They're not idols. We don't worship. <laughs> but have you ever looked at these things? They've been around for over 100 years. And they've not moved. That wall moves, but they don't move. <laughs> Go on, you're worried. It moves back and forth. But it, they never move. You can look at them. They never say anything. They never budge, they just stand there. That's what the idols did. They had nothing to contribute. God is looking for a sign of life and here is the awkward silence. They have nothing to say. Nothing to say. So there is secondly in this text an awful verdict. Here's God's, here's God's verdict on these idols who claim to be God. He says, uh, that there is no basis for their claim to our heart's affection or trust. Behold, you are nothing. Your work is less than nothing. And an abomination is he who chooses you. These idols just don't exist. 
They're not gods, and they're not God. They're not wholly other. They're not outside the space-time continuum. They're not objective, independent beings that are not part of the continuity of things as we know them or see them. They are not holy. They are not utterly other. They are not the one. And so to choose them, that is to choose a construct of the human mind that explains reality apart from the revelation of God found in Scripture. To choose that, says God, notice, you choose them. It's not just a mistake you make. It is a perversion that you make. Because what you're doing is you are credited you are crediting to a created thing or a created thought something that should be credited to the uncreated God. We all worship something. And when we confess our faith in a system, a theory, a philosophy that excludes or marginalizes the true God, God says that's an abomination. But more, I want you to notice what the text says. It says, you become an abomination. In Psalm 135, here's the language of the Psalm. Those who make them, it's talking about the idols, those who make them, make them up in their mind or make them with wood or stone or whatever it may be. Those who make them become like them. Now what do we mean by that? Remember, you're speaking to people whose thought of a god or, or, or a, a construct of, that, that explains reality is actually a physical thing like those little people there. And what did I say was a feature of these things? These, they've been here, they've never said one word all the time they've been in this church. They've never said anything. They've never seen anything. They cannot see, they cannot hear. The key to understanding what is meant here is actually in Isaiah chapter 6 where Isaiah meets the Lord God in the, holy, in the temple. He hears the angels singing holy. And God gives him a message for his people who are playing around with worshipping him on the one hand and worshipping idols on the other. And what he threatens, what he threatens to people who put their faith and their trust in a construct, a human construct that explains reality. Here's what he says, you become like the idol you serve. Here's what he says in Isaiah 6. You will have eyes and you will not see. You will have ears and you will not hear. Just like the idols. Professor Beale of Westminster Seminary puts it like this. We resemble what we revere either for ruin or restoration. We resemble what we revere either for ruin or restoration. If you revere the Lord as God, you'll reflect his holiness resulting in restoration. If you revere an idol, you will reflect its spiritual blindness and deafness resulting in ruin. 
Because let there be no doubt about this. You have to decide. You have to decide today who you're going to serve. Are you going to serve the human, man-made, man-thought-up construct that explains reality or the God who reveals himself in Scripture? Who are you going to, who are you going to believe? Remember what Paul says as he's writing to the Romans. And he talks about the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. He says they have the truth. What can be known about God is plain. It can be seen, plain to them. God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, his, divine, his eternal power, his divine nature can be clearly perceived in the things that have been made so that everybody is without excuse. So why doesn't everybody see it? Here's the answer. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise and to know it all. They became fools because they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and so on. It may be a mental image, it may be a metal image, doesn't matter. It's the same thing. You exchange the immortal God and his revealed truth in the book of nature and scripture. You, re you replace that with something that human beings have come up with. Some idea that human beings have developed in their own time and in their own way. And you are a fool, you become an abomination, an abomination to God. That's a serious word. You do not see, you cannot hear. You get to that point where you follow this man-made thing. This, in the end, will blind you and deafen you to the real truth that there is in Jesus. No wonder the, apostle, the, the, the leader of Israel, Joshua, challenges the people of his day. He challenges them to put away the gods of their fathers and the gods of the people of Egypt and the gods of the nations round about. And he, he urges them to serve the Lord. And he says to them, look, you have to choose this day who, you, who you're going to serve. Are you going to serve the gods of the people of Philadelphia, the gods of the people of America, the gods of the people around the world who are finding their own alternative explanation of reality? Are you going to serve those gods or are you going to serve the one and only God who's revealed himself in Christ. Joshua says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So there's an awkward silence and there's an awful, an awful sentence. And thirdly, there's an awesome declaration. Look at verse 25. What the idols cannot do, God does. I stirred up one from the north. The prophet is using the prophetic past tense. This is his great argument for the reality of God. This is the argument that won the Israelites, the, the Jews, over to believing and treasuring the writings of the prophets. As their history unfolded and they looked back at Isaiah's writing, as they listened to what Jeremiah had said, they realized these men had spoken, had prophesied, had predicted, not vaguely, something that could go either way. They had been quite specific in what they had predicted and prophesied. 
This prophet's faculties have been borne along by the Spirit of God. And he's speaking to people way into the future. He's speaking to us today. Here's what the Lord says. I stirred up one from the north, and he has come from the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. It's the same one referred to earlier in chapter 41, who comes from the east. So which is it? Did he come from the east or from the north? And who is it? Later on it will become very apparent who it is. It's Cyrus, the leader of the Persian Empire, which is directly east of Jerusalem and Palestine. And why does he come from the north? It's because in order to get to Palestine, he has to avoid a desert. And so the troops would go north. They did go north. They attacked Babylon from the north. They went over the top of those Middle Eastern countries and they assaulted and attacked some of the Greek kingdoms, the Lydians, for example. And they came down towards little Judah and Jerusalem. In other words, not only does God say they're going to rise, he actually tells you the way they're going to come in order to reach little Judah. This God tells you what's going to happen in detail. Not just a vague generality. This is what's going to happen. This had been going on right throughout Isaiah's ministry. Throughout his ministry. He had been predicting when, when uh, Ahaz, the king, you remember, he's all worried about the alliance of the Syrians and the northern ten tribes. The alliance against him. He thinks they're going to invade any moment now. And he's all worried in a panic. And he's getting sweating about it. And Isaiah comes to him and says, that's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. No need to worry. Don't need to get the siege works up. and No need to find alternative ways of getting water into the city because you're not going to be besieged by the Syrians and the Israelites coming down from the north. It is not going to happen. Somebody else is going to deal with them, the Assyrians. I know they're small just now, but they're going to deal with them. You don't have to worry. And Isaiah has it written down. He has it notarized. He has it deposited in a public place so people can go read it and check that what he said is true. What he said was true. Later, later on, they're getting all worried about the rise of the Assyrians. And Isaiah says, you don't need to worry about the Assyrians. They will attack. Yes, they will. They'll come down and they will come into Judah and they'll attack the outer, the outer fringes of the land. But they will, not, they will not be able to take Jerusalem. In fact, not only will they not be able to take Jerusalem, Jerusalem will be freed without you even having to fight. You won't have to lift a sword because God is going to upset them. God is going to annoy them. They're going to be terrified and they're going to run away and go back home and everything will be all right. Isaiah had that notarized, written down. There it was. Everybody knew. He warns about the Babylonians. He has it put in writing. It's there so that they can read it for themselves. The Babylonians are the next bad boys on the block. They're going to come. This time, Jerusalem will fall. This time, the people will be taken into exile. And now he's predicting something 160, 170 years into the future. The rise of the Persians are going to come. He gives you a detailed breakdown. Later on, he'll even tell you the name of the man who will lead them. And these things that happen, you see, that, that is supernatural. 
That's why some of the Enlightenment people didn't like this kind of thing because they don't want supernatural. They don't want a Bible that's supernatural. The God of the Bible is supernatural because he is supranatural. He is out with the natural order. He's not, he is not part of this space-time continuum that you and I are in. That's the reality of the God of the Bible. And so he, he is able to tell you things that would never have been imagined before. Isaiah has told us that the coming son of David, who will be God's king, will be born of a virgin. Who ever heard of that happening? God's becoming a human being, conceived in a virgin's womb. And he's going, to be a, he's going to be a man and have a human kingdom, but he's going to have divine titles. He's going to be known as, as the mighty God. And he's going to be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And he's going to be killed. And he's going to be raised to the, from dead. And he's going to be highly exalted, like God himself. Who ever heard of these things? Isaiah has been building up this picture of a God who keeps his word absolutely, accurately. Where will he be born? Bethlehem. How will he be born? Of a virgin. What will happen to him? His hands and feet will be pierced. They'll, they'll bargain for his clothing. They'll play dice for his closet, clothing. And to the detail. The God of Israel is the God who tells you how it's going to be. And here he's telling them here, who declared it from the beginning that we might know beforehand, that we might say, he is right, there was none who declared it, none who proclaimed it. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are. God says, he is the first and the only to tell the end from the beginning. When they're commenting, when they're commenting on what actually happened, it is to Isaiah they look and they borrow the language of Isaiah that he uses here. I stirred up one from the north. And in Second Chronicles 36, we read, The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord... The God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. And whoever is among you of all these people, let him come. Come up to the temple. And using this pagan king, the glorious name of God is exalted as God keeps his word. And the reality is there is only one God. One God who has proved himself. One God who is here providing us the evidence. You see, set forth your case. This is what's happening. This is Isaiah's apologetic. God makes promises and keeps them. God makes predictions and makes them happen. God has been demonstrated publicly to you. And do you know the interesting thing? One of the great, one of the great questions of history is this. That these Jewish people who for all of their history from the exodus to the exile played both ends against the middle. Worshipped Yahweh and worshipped idols. The exile cured them once and for all.
That was the end of it. There was no idolatry after that. They became fiercely monotheistic. What made the difference? Their God was demonstrated to be the only God there is. They read these arguments of Isaiah and they said, that's actually the way it was. That's what happened. Isaiah told us these things were going to unfold this way. And so they have. And we believe God. Well, we worship a God who both knows the future and through the prophets predicts exactly how it will unfold. In specifics, he shows us what is going to take place. Those people who think God doesn't act with a script, the openness, theologians, that who think the future is not yet settled, really do not know the God of the Bible. Here is a God who declares and knows and does. And there is no revelation of this God outside of the tradition of Israel culminating in Jesus Christ. The thousand gods of the Mesopotamians don't know or predict the future. The cultural consensus of our time doesn't know the past or the future. Here is Yahweh's scathing denunciation of all of the constructs of the nations. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. They are wind and confusion. The Lord has no rivals. And Isaiah's argument is that no God, no expert, no think tank, no government agency can predict the future or tell the past in terms of origins. So who are you going to trust? Who are you going to trust? Trust the one who is there. Trust the one who has always been there. Trust the one who is not part of this reality, who explains this reality which he created to you. This one who has given us a sure word of prophecy. This one who will build his church and will not let the gates of hell prevail against it. Trust this one. Serve this one. And know that nothing can separate you from his love in Christ Jesus. Peter says, we have something more sure. We have the prophetic word to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. The future is bright with the promises of God. Let's pray together. Father, we ask please that you would write your word in our minds and hearts, that you would take the scales away from our eyes that we might see, that you would unstop those plugs in our ears, that we would hear the word of God. That, Father, we would give our hearts allegiance, our minds, uh, reasons, trust, and our wills obedience to that word that you have revealed in Christ. We pray that you would strengthen us to face the challenges of this week, the challenges of tomorrow, confident in our faith in you. We pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen.